Hey, welcome. I'm James. Uh, James Boley. My wife, Kim, and I are the co-pastors of Simo Chi Alpha. Uh, it's good to have you guys here with us today. Uh, we got a little theme verse I'm going to hit because I, I don't want to get too sidetracked by stuff. So let's hit it. We, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Awesome. So uh, just touching on some, some uh, terminology. Gospel means good news. Good news of God is specifically that uh, there is a God uh, revealed to us in Jesus Christ, that he loves you and that you can know him. Um, I, I like to share that. Uh, just because I, I never want to get to the point where I'm so comfortable saying the things that I'm saying that I forget that maybe someone would not understand or know the word that we're, we're talking about. Um, I always want to use what we would call Starbucks language in a Walmart world, okay? Um, I never want to get to the point where uh, I, I'm talking about stuff in, in such a way where uh, even the words that I'm using are so out of our English language uh, that you would not be able to understand it, okay? Um, so just trying to boil that down. Part of the reason that I have a heart for making sure things are nice and clear uh, is because I was an art major in college, okay? Uh, not to say that I wasn't like academic or anything like that, but I was an art major with an education degree, and I more and more and more I got to the point where I realized that a lot of the time when I would go uh, uh, hear someone teaching on anything, whether it would be art or geology or whatever, it was really interesting how very smart people can very quickly forget that everybody else in the room maybe does not know what uh, uh, eschatology means. And, and all of a sudden they're talking about all this stuff and it's like, dude, you are so far like out there. You're so out of touch that people do not understand. Um, so anyway, being an art major, I try to dumb it down a little bit and make sure I'm not trying to dumb it down because you're smart people, but I'm trying to keep it at a level where you can understand. Now, going back to this whole idea of being an art student. All right. So when I was in high school, OK, uh, I really didn't know like I had a lot of things I was decent at, um, but I didn't have any clue what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Uh, but I found that art was one of those things that that really just was fun and I liked it and I was good at it. And do you ever feel like it's really good to be good at something? Like, have you ever had that thing that you're like, wow, I'm good at this and you really liked being good at it? Um, and for those of you that are like, no, no, I do not. Uh, I pray that you will find that good thing. All right. I believe, to be completely honest with you, and this is very serious. I'm tr trying kind of joking a little bit, but I'm very serious that God has created you with a purpose. There is something that you are especially good at, and only you are the person that is capable of fulfilling that that purpose in your life. There's no one else that is made like you. There's no one else that is gifted like you. So even if you're like, I have nothing to give, I personally believe the closer you get to God, the more you're going to figure out what that one thing is. Okay. Um, tangent. So in, in high school, I was really good at art. In fact, it got to the point where it became very apparent that in my class, I very small class, I was very much the best art student. There were a lot of good art students, but I was honestly 
trying to be humble, I was the best, okay? To be honest, there was only two other people that were four years below or above me that were, we would be in the same level. There was one girl, she was awesome, she was above us. There was another girl, her sister, we were basically on the same level. And and this is eight years of, of classes in between that anybody was close. Then I went to college, and I got a scholarship to go to college for to be an art student. So I, I go to Missouri State. Back in the day, it was actually a good art school, and CMO didn't really have a good art program. So you guys have a good art program. Good job. Um, but I went... And in this process of, of going to Missouri State, uh, I, I got to work with this teacher I really liked. He was really hard. He was really mean. And he really fit my personality really well. It was like he'd walk over and he'd go, that is all wrong. And I'd be like, ah, this is my guy. I like him. And, and he, would, he actually would help me fix it. And that first semester, I was by far in my class the best student in class and drawing class and this guy was notorious like my uh my student advisor that had helped me pick the classes like you do not want this guy he is like the worst drawing teacher you will not get an a and i i was like well but but this is the guy that's supposed to be the best art, art like drawing teacher and she's like yeah he's the best but you won't get an a and i'm like i don't really care i just want i want to be with the best. I got an A. And to be honest with you, I, I really, I worked hard, but I didn't really work that hard. Um, and like mostly it was like a three hour drawing class. You went in there, you drew for three hours and then you would leave. You'd come back a couple days later, you draw again and then you'd have assignments. Anyway, long story short, uh, I got an A in the class. I was really excited. So I took him again the next semester because, well, he had made me a lot better. Like I went from being good to being really good. And now I'm like, wow, this guy is awesome. I'm going to take him again. So now we're in drawing two, right? And now, first day, I realize, oh, I am not the only one. There are three of us in the class that are that good. Um, and so now, all of a sudden, I've got competition. And to be completely honest with you, it was really annoying because I hadn't had competition in, like, a long time. And... These other two guys were really good. And pretty much every day at the end of the day, you could just feel the tension of everyone would walk around the room and you would look at everybody's stuff. And I would walk by guy number one, I won't name him, and be like, dang it, that, he did good today. And I walk by guy number two, and I'd be like, yes, <laughs> I am better today. I am better. And you, you know what the worst thing about all this was? At the time, this totally pushed us away from, like, liking each other. We did not talk to each other out of class. We didn't, like, befriend each other and stuff like that. You know how sometimes you, you share things with people and it draws you together? This didn't. This pushed us apart. All, all three of us, we didn't really hang out. We had our own little groups of people that we've collected in class that, like, half of the class is with this one guy and half the class is with this one guy, and I had, like, these two people because... Uh, is me uh but the really sad thing about all this why why this was actually a bad thing is years later i came to find out that these guys were christians the other two guys so it was me and these other two christians in the room and what did we do 
we competed with each other. We pushed each other away. Now we didn't really, we weren't really mean to each other, uh, but we definitely were not nice to each other either. Um, and all of this competing really just, honestly, it destroyed what could have been really cool relationships. So, okay, what is the problem? The problem that we're talking about today is pride, all right? We've all experienced things like this where you have someone in your life that uh, you compete with. Maybe they lift more than you do. Uh, (laughs) Maybe maybe you're competing with them for tryouts. Uh, Maybe you're auditioning for a similar part. Uh, Maybe your first chair and their second chair and now you're competing to to stay in first chair or what whatnot maybe maybe you're the anchor on the track uh relay and now they're fighting for that position with you um we've we've all had experiences like this where we've had people in our life that we compete with and honestly the problem always comes back pride divides us all right and i'm not talking about like like oh, I'm proud that I can do this thing well, okay? Um, it, it's not, hard work is not a bad thing, right? Hard work is very much a good thing. The Bible talks very clearly about hard work being a good thing, right? And like I've said before, your skills that you have that you're really good at, those are things that are given to you by God, right? He designed you with those things in mind. Those things bring him pleasure, So the skills that you have are not a bad thing, right? But it's our dependence on those things to give us value that is actually what is bad, okay? The bad, the pride, comes from the fact that my drawing stuff, right? I'm relying on my skills to give me value as one of the best drawers in this class. And, ah, you know, like the pride comes from this idea that I am lifting myself up and because I'm lifting myself up, I am maybe unintentionally, but at the same time still pushing other people down, right? This is what pride does and this is what is the problem. We should find value in our skills and in these God-given talents that God has given us but we shouldn't find our dependence on those skills. We should find our dependence on the giver of those skills. That brings me to our title. A mature, humble Christian is confident in their dependence on God. Okay, so I want to take a look at a passage from Luke 18. And it's a pretty short little passage. Um, it, it's something that you you might have heard before. It's, it's often used to talk about prayer. Um, but there's an aspect of this that I want to talk about that is going back to this idea of humility and and what is humility all right luke 18 verses 9 through 14 to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else jesus told them this parable two men went up to the temple to pray one a pharisee and one a tax collector the pharisee stood by himself and prayed god i thank you that i am not like other people robbers evildoers adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, this man being the tax collector rather than the Pharisee, 
went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Okay, so first and foremost, Pharisee. Going back to the whole making sure my terminology is clear. A Pharisee uh, was a Jew. Uh, they were basically kind of like a legal expert. Now, they weren't actually like a political leader, but in today's society, probably the equivalent would be it was a political leader. All right, it was a, it was a leader of a political faction um, that, that a lot of people looked up to, okay? Uh, they knew the laws really well, not necessarily the Bible, right? They did, it's not that they knew the Old Testament really well. They did, but they actually knew what would be called the oral tradition of the elders. Um, the oral tradition of the elders was this separate set of laws that was different than what we would call our Old Testament, okay? It was, it was laws that they would look at something from Deuteronomy, for example, and they would say, oh, well, this verse says this thing that, oh, if your uh, ox falls into a hole, you can pull it out on the Sabbath, all right? Um, but they would say, oh, but what size ox? Is it a calf? Is it a working ox? Is it a meat ox? Which type is it? And then they would like spell these things out even further. And so it got so bad, to be honest, that it, the, the law stopped being about what God had specifically asked them. And it became about like, oh, well, to, to work on the Sabbath was to not just pick a handful of grain out of a field as you walk by, but it was to take one kernel of grain and put it to your mouth. And so if you did two, oop, you're a sinner. But if you did one, still okay, all right? How does that involve eating, though, right? So these laws didn't actually make sense. The laws got so specific and, and out there that it was more about we have to figure out the minutia of who is better than who because they can follow the law better, okay? And so then tax collector. What was a tax collector? The tax collector in this story we can tell by the way Jesus tells the story, this tax collector is at the temple, he is praying. That means if he's at the temple, he is a Jew, right? He's a person from Israel. And if he is a tax collector, that means he works for Rome. What does that mean? That means he's a traitor, right? A tax collector was working for the occupying government that had taken over the area. And so if you work for the occupying government, you are an enemy of your people, right? So basically, this traitor to his people is in the temple praying. And Jesus, being the jerk that he is, tells this story. And he tells the story about the hero. And then it turns out the hero is actually the villain. And the villain is actually the hero. And all the people are sitting there going, this is weird. Why is he telling a story about a good tax collector and a bad Pharisee? This doesn't make any sense at all. It'd be like saying that Captain America was Hydra. And that Red Skull ended up being like some Avenger or something like that. So, hey, trying to go there. It just doesn't make sense, people. All right. So basically, this story is a warning against pushing oneself forward in the sight of God. Jesus turns, like I said, the public opinion on its head. And it's not that he just does this this one time. This is why people didn't like Jesus. It's why some people really liked him and why a lot of people really didn't like him. It's honestly what got him killed is that Jesus comes in and time and time again, he says, look, guys, I love you very much. But the things that you say are very important are not important at all. 
And the things that you are leaving behind and saying these are not important things, those are actually the most important things. In the beginning of this, this passage, Jesus is in the house of this Pharisee. And in this house, now this is totally a setup. The Pharisee had invited, apparently, to this dinner. He'd invited a crippled man. And the man has, has some sort of uh, uh, disease or something going on. And Jesus basically says, which is more important? And he pulls the man in front of him, and he heals him. And, and Jesus is like, is it right to heal on the Sabbath? And everybody's kind of quiet because everybody's like, well, according to the law, no, it's not right to work on the Sabbath, and that would be work, right? And Jesus is like, what is wrong with you people? Like, how do you not get this? So when the Pharisee says, basically, I deserve favor. I deserve to be favored by God because of all of the good things that I do. He says that, that he, he tithes and he obeys the Sabbath. He's not like the adulterers and the murderers and these other people or this tax collector. I obey all the rules. I deserve your favor, God. As soon as he says the word deserve, he has missed it. He's missed it all. Okay? When we say the word deserve, we destroy the idea of grace. We destroy the idea of mercy. We destroy the idea of love. Okay? Love, mercy, grace, these are not things that can be deserved. To deserve something is that you have earned it. But love, can you earn love from someone? You really shouldn't. That's not healthy, right? Love should be given, right? Mercy should be given. Mercy that is earned is not mercy, right? It doesn't make sense. Grace that is earned is no longer grace. It does not make sense. By extension, when we start thinking about the things that we deserve, whether you are intending to do it or not, you have, you have actually said that other people are not deserving, right? By saying that I was the best artist in class, in whichever class I was talking about, I was very obviously saying that there were people that weren't. There were people that weren't good. Now, was that wrong? No, it wasn't wrong. But when we start taking these things and applying them to the things of God, when we say that I deserve to be loved by God, immediately what we are saying is there are people that don't deserve to be loved by God, that I am different than them, that they are cast out and I should be included, right? So all of a sudden, when we get involved in this small-mindedness, we push ourselves forward and we leave other people behind. We, however, are called to have the same realistic view of our dependency on God's love and the same generosity in sharing it with other people. I'm going to say this again. We are called as followers of God, as followers of Jesus, we are called to have the same realistic view of our dependency on God and his love for us and the same generosity in sharing it with others. Because this is what God did. This is what Jesus did. Jesus came, and he said, Look, I am offering you freedom. I'm offering you 
forgiveness. I'm offering you the ability to be made right again. But it is solely dependent on your trust in me being a good God. But I also want to share that not just with you, but with everyone. A mature, humble Christian is confident in their dependence on God. So we are justified. Justified is a fancy word. It means uh, to be found approved, uh, to be made right. Um, But we are justified by our faith in God's goodness, not our own, right? This is the first thing that faith is trying to do. Faith is saying, Jesus, I trust you and your goodness to make me right with you. I know that I can't be made right with you, that nothing I do can fix our relationship. But I know that if I come to you, you are willing, and he has, by his death, he has made us right in our relationship with him. Sorry, I lost my place. So the heart of God is that all people can trust him and experience him. The heart of God is that people will understand that he is a good and merciful creator. That is the heart of God, that all people would be able to experience him in that way. The Pharisee can't see God's heart. The Pharisee wants to take himself and raise himself up and say, I have done all of these things. You owe this to me. The Pharisee can't see that honestly, well, There's no way for him to do everything right to earn a place into God's presence, right? Basically, that would be saying, God, I don't believe you're holy enough to be out of my reach, okay? If I can do enough things to earn my way into your presence, you are not holy enough. You're not set apart and unreachable for me, that you are attainable for me, God. Do we understand this? And yet the tax collector says, God, I know you are unattainable. I know I can't earn my way into your presence. I know the only way that I can come to you is if you will let me. And I trust you that you do let me. This is the personality. This is the perspective that we should be having, that our our dependence should be found in an unfailing God. So now what do we do with this? Okay, C.S. Lewis is a writer uh, from a long time ago, uh, English guy. I really like him. He wrote Chronicles of Narnia, if you know what those are. Um, Lion, the Witch, of the Wardrobe, something like that, you know. Okay, cool. So he writes a bunch of uh, uh, basically theological Christian books. And one of the statements that he makes about humility is one of my personal favorite statements about humility ever. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, all right? So this is the beauty of of what godly humility actually is. Godly humility is not taking ourself and, like, destroying ourselves, all right? How many of you guys in this room have taken the Enneagram? Oh, wow, a lot of you. Holy cow. Okay, hold on. So here's the deal. If I stand like this, any of you guys a one in the room? Yeah. Does it bother you that I have one sleeve up and one sleeve down? Does it bother you? It really bothers me right now. I am so bothered by this. This is wrong. Okay. So there are people in this room 
that we are harsh enough on ourselves, right, that honestly we have this mindset that humility, in order for me to be humble, that means I have to beat myself up all the time, right? We have to have this little voice in our head telling us, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, and then we have to do it right, and until we do it right, we don't feel good about ourselves. And even when we feel good about ourselves, we don't really feel good about ourselves because we should have done it right the first time, right? So, okay. So, <laughs> sorry. Sorry for all you ones out there. I just told your secrets. Um, <laughs> I am a one. Uh, here's the deal. Okay. There is this mindset that to be a humble person means that I have to make less of myself, okay? And I just really want to debunk that right now. You don't have to be a lesser person to be humble, okay? To, to be a lesser person, to make yourself a lesser person, do you understand what you're actually doing? You're taking the image of God that God has put in you, and you're like, you're saying that it's not good. It's not good enough. And honestly, a lot of times you're taking it and you're saying, this, this is so bad, and I need to throw it on the ground, and I need to step on it. Would you ever say that to anybody else, that the image of God needs to be thrown down and trampled upon? Would you ever say to any of your friends, you, you're right, you're not good enough, you're a horrible, horrible person, you just need to stop everything? Like, you wouldn't do that. Why do we do it to ourselves? Why do we beat ourselves up so much? Now, here's the other thing. I'm not saying we don't self-evaluate because I, I just said that last week. You do self-evaluate, but we do it realistically, right? And we acknowledge the fact that, you know what, I am going to mess up from time to time. I'm preaching to myself here really hard. I am going to mess up from time to time. I'm not always going to be perfect. And while I would like to be better, it's not the end of the world and it's not I'm trash, this is trash, I need to never do any of this again, okay? Like, this mindset of humility being something that is self-destructive is wrong. Humility is actually just realizing what is, what is real in me, what is good, what is not good, and we accept it. We understand it. This is, this is the truth. This is the ultimate truth about who I am right now in this moment. And I realize that in this moment, I can actually grow. And I can change. But it doesn't mean I'm trash. It means that, honestly, I'm growing, and that's a good thing. So humility realizes that we are dependent upon Jesus and this should absolutely unite us, okay? Absolutely, 100%. If we all realize that we are all completely dependent upon Jesus Christ for everything that we are, right? To actually be a child of God, we are dependent on Jesus. That means that every other person that we meet is dependent on Jesus to be a child of God. And that should help us so much in our relationships with other people. And I know other people are going to, they're going to be jerks sometimes. All right. Other people are, are not always going to have this mindset. In fact, most other people do not have this mindset. In fact, most of us do not have this mindset. Okay. Let's just be honest. All right. 
But once we can start beginning to live in this way, all of a sudden we, we begin to have the power to change a lot of relationships and to change ourselves. When we stop spending so much time focusing on ourselves and on who we are, and we can start p- spending a little bit more time looking at God and who he is, and then also looking at the people that he loves around us. One of the most beautiful things about growing in humility is it allows us to step alongside of other people, link arm in arm, and march on together towards knowing God better. One of the things we talk about in Chi Alpha and leadership a lot is that whatever you have done in your life, right, good and bad, right, it creates a platform, all right? Now, sometimes all the good and all the bad that we've done, it, it creates a platform that we, we have a hard time going much higher than, right? Like just, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this in sports if you pay any attention to sports, that, that there are records that are being made now in sports that are so much farther beyond what were made in the past, right? That, that you look at in sports, that you look at there are certain things people, people couldn't run as fast previously, years ago. They couldn't jump as high. They couldn't score as many goals. They couldn't score, throw as many touchdowns, right? But the reality is it's not so much that people are so much stronger now. It's that there was a benchmark and that the platform that was created long ago has been created so that other people can now stand on it. And now they have a different perspective and a different way that they can work off that platform. In the same way you and I are creating platforms for the people around us. That we can be people that we can allow people to stand on so that they can go higher. Right? This is ultimately what true Christian humility is supposed to do. We are supposed to provide platforms for the people around us so that they can stand on our shoulders and reach higher than they could on their own. So my question is, who is standing on your platform? 